I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy. We, we have entered into the, the last chapter of 1 Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks out there, you can find that on page 993. The title of our sermon is Bond Servants and Masters, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are honor, serve, and believing. What, uh, what, what comes to your mind when you hear the word slavery? I imagine that there's a good chance that for just about every single one of us in this room this morning, our minds either immediately or almost immediately race to the African slave trade of the 17th through 19th centuries where Africans were kidnapped by their fellow countrymen, shipped across the Atlantic Ocean in what could only be described as gruesome living conditions. And then the poor men, women, and children who survived the journey were, were, brought, were bought and sold as slaves here in the land of the free and the home of the brave, among other places in the world as well. And then they were subjected to severe cruelties, which consisted of various forms and degrees of physical and sexual abuse, often were not permitted to read, and uh, it, was, it was an awful enterprise. And because of the atrocities that occurred during this enterprise, the, the 21st century Westerner almost exclusively connects the word slavery with kidnapping, cruelty, and abuse. Now, while this certainly has been one very prominent form of slavery throughout the world, it is not the only type of arrangement that someone might have in mind, especially in the ancient context like the first century Rome. wouldn't be the only arrangement the person has in mind when they use the word slaves, which brings us to 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. In these two verses, Paul concludes his admonition to the church at Ephesus regarding some specific troubled relationships that existed within her ranks at the time of his writing. Remember, after outlining in chapters 1, 2, and 3 certain foundational theological needs that the church had, Commitments that they had to make, like the need for sound doctrine, properly ordered worship, and godly leadership, Paul shifts uh, in chapters 4 through 6 to to make some needed application of these principles. And here in this section, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 2, uh, Paul is addressing three specific groups within the church. Uh, These groups had become very misunderstood by those in Ephesus. And particularly, uh, what was to be the the relationship of these groups to the church or the relationships of the people within these groups. So in verses 1 through 16, we really looked at Paul's call for the church to care for widows. And then in verses 17 through 25, we, we saw his call for the church to 
uh, respect and honor elders while at the same time, when necessary, rebuking them and being uh, patient in calling them in the first place. Well, today we will see Paul exhort those who found themselves in the service of another, particularly in uh, a type of bond service or slavery. And he calls upon these, these people to, uh, to honor them, namely for the advancement of the gospel. Paul writes in these two verses, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So there are three parts to the sermon this morning. First, uh, before we really even look at the text itself, we need to offer a word about Scripture's overall view on slavery. So the idea of slavery as it occurs in Scripture, generally, we need to speak a word about that. We need to make sure that as we approach these two verses that we have a clear understanding about what Paul actually has in mind when he pens these words. So first, a word about slavery in the Bible generally. Second, looking at the text itself, we will see Paul in these two verses give this admonition regarding uh, slaves and how they are to view their masters. And this admonition has two components. First, how slaves should regard their masters generally. That's verse 1. But second, how slaves should, if they were fortunate enough to have a believing master, how should they regard their believing masters? So, a word about slavery generally. Paul's actual words here in verses 1 and 2. And then third, uh, a final point to make some needed application from all of this to us today. So before we look at the text in the first place, we need to state clearly what Paul has in mind here when he speaks of slaves, or as it's translated here in the ESV, as bondservants and masters. And perhaps as just as importantly, what does he not have in mind? Paul, unlike the the 21st century American, does not use the term slave to refer exclusively to to someone being forced to do something against his will, right? Being forced to do something arduous and agonizing in the service of another who views him merely as property. Now, there are a variety of forms of slavery that have occurred in the world, and there are three really worth mentioning here that will help us clarify what Paul has in mind. First, this is what you could call Hebrew servanthood. In Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 35, we read of the provisions for an Israelite who became poor or went into serious debt, and as such, as this debtor was unable unable to provide for himself and his family. One option available to him was to sell himself into the service of another, to sell himself to another and to work off his debt, to save up enough money to get out on his own again, And there, in that passage in Leviticus 25, God tells Israel, he shall not be treated as a slave, 
but as a hired worker until the year of Jubilee, which was every seven years when slaves were given the option of being set free and having their debts forgiven. He says this is because they fundamentally, these Israelites, belong to God. And so they are not to be ruled over ruthlessly. This was one type of slavery that existed in the Old Covenant. A second kind of slavery is that of Greco-Roman slavery. This is predominantly the kind of slavery under consideration of the New Testament writers, which admittedly was a mixed bag. Under the system, someone might sell himself into slavery for various reasons. For some, it was actually a path to gain Roman citizenship. In many cases, this type of Roman slavery was very humane. It was even helpful, and it provided security and stability for slaves in a variety of different venues and was, to some, even preferable to freedom because of the security that it guaranteed. They were secure under the care of their master, uh, unlike before when they would just be on their own. And in fact, most slaves uh, in the Roman Empire there were... um, they were freed before they were 30 years old when they were financially stable and responsible. Nevertheless, it is important that we not view Greco-Roman slavery through overly uh, rose-colored glasses. Many slaves were indeed treated poorly, they were marginalized, and they were left with little to no power um, over their, their own lives. It certainly, even in the best of circumstances, isn't ideal. But it was a generally accepted practice at the time, particularly for how to provide for the poor. However, it should still be contrasted with a third type of slavery, that of what you could call chattel slavery. As we said earlier, right, Americans and Westerners, just in general, hear the word slavery and immediately think of this type of slavery, which I think you could say is characterized by three main features. There is an objectification or a dehumanization that, is take, that takes place. Uh, usually it involves kidnapping of some kind uh, and coercing another person, right? And in our minds as Americans, Westerners, it's usually based on something like sex, ethnicity, or some other equally arbitrary characteristic, It is a type of slavery that is completely involuntary on the part of the one in slavery. And it involves the use or threat of force to achieve a desired outcome. So what is Paul's view, right? So those are the the three types. You have Hebrew servanthood, you have Greco-Roman slavery, and then you have the types of slavery like the ones that, the one that we're familiar with in uh, America. Um. What was Paul's view? Well, it cannot be stated strongly enough, Paul is not speaking of this latter kind of slavery in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. How can I be so sure? Well, if you cast your mind uh, all the way back, or your eyes, back to chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul condemns kidnapping. He says that those who take someone captive in order to sell him into slavery among other people in this list in verses 8 through 10, he says that person stands judged before the law of God. So we should be clear. Paul is not calling upon people who have been kidnapped 
and subjected to grueling living conditions and abused in abhorrent physical and or sexual ways to regard their masters as worthy of all honor. That needs to be said very clearly from the top. We know this also because of how he wrote to the Ephesians in the letter by the same name, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, he writes to masters, Masters, stop your threatening, knowing that both slaves and masters have the same master who is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So not only is kidnapping something a person stands judged before the law of God, but harsh and cruel treatment from masters in a different situation is equally condemned by Paul. He is adamant. Masters were not to mistreat those in their service. Right? And those who obtained a slave through the act of kidnapping stood condemned before God. So I think it's important that we, not be, we don't let ourselves be dragged into any nonsense that bad actors wish to in, inflict upon God's people by suggesting that the Bible is pro-kidnapping and pro-forcing others into degrading acts of sex and violence. Admittedly, that might not need to be said, but it seems not all things that need to be said need to be said. The truth is, the Bible all throughout is, is built on the, the belief that this type of slavery is immoral, wrong, and needs to stop. Right? The Bible understands that, that this form of slavery is built on threats and violence and is condemned all throughout. In Job 31.5, Job notes that he, a free man, and the slave are both created by God in the womb and therefore have equal dignity before God. This is clear as well from Genesis itself in the first two chapters, right? God creates male and female in his image and does not create slave and free. Slavery, right, is a post-fall reality. It's not something baked into God's original design. But Scripture doesn't only positively speak of the dignity and value of each human life. It also explicitly condemns slavery that, in particular, involves kidnapping and coercion. Um, Several places we could go. uh, Exodus 21 is a good example. Uh, We won't be here too long, so you don't have to flip there. You can if you want, but just mark it down. Exodus 21, starting in verse 16, we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Down in verse 20, we read, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Likewise, down in verses 26 and 27, we see that if a man strikes his slave and the slave receives, uh, or he su- su- receives a severe injury from it, the example is given if he loses an eye or a tooth, the slave shall be set free. Slavery that involved kidnapping or physically harming another person is abhorrent to God and under the old covenant was punishable by death. So for us Americans with a very specific picture of slavery in mind, when we come to a biblical text like 1 Timothy 6 that speak about slavery in some form, we need to bear in mind that Scripture on the whole rejects, condemns, and calls for the immediate cessation of such forms of slavery that we probably tend to think about. 
And so it's helpful to remember that if these truths in the Bible had been embraced and practiced consistently by Christians in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, slavery would never have existed like it did in pre-war America. But that does also bring us to another important point to make about slavery in in general and, and slavery in the Bible. The Bible addresses slavery like it does any other theme in life, right? The authors of the Bible wrote to specific people in specific cultures at specific times in specific places. And slavery has existed in basically every society, in every place in the world since nearly the beginning of time, right? Just after the fall. The one of the uncomfortable ugly and heart-wrenching realities of living in a fallen world is that sinful people want to rule over and enslave other sinful people. The entirety of Scripture, we should remember, is written into this perspective. In fact, slavery existed in the world for centuries before Moses penned his first word of Scripture. He writes it to Israel, who had been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And so the Bible does condemn outright coercive slavery built on kidnapping and cruelty. But it does not have our modern sensibilities. And so it doesn't explicitly condemn other arrangements whereby a person might sell himself or be sold into other forms of slavery. But rather regulates them such that these are situations that the Bible is expectant That when the gospel is preached in this society, in this society, in that one, in that one, hearts will be changed and there will be an end, an abolition of slavery, period. Now we can categorize various forms of slavery and some are worse than others, but we must acknowledge that. In any sense in which one person is, is said or thought to own another, it's not good. It's not ideal. But we do live in a fallen world. So for the Bible, or Paul here in particular, to tell masters of of all kinds that they were obligated to free their slaves immediately or else be banished from Christ at a time when every single economy in the world was founded on these lesser forms of slavery, the world economy would have collapsed and everyone, slave and free, would likely become destitute. So Paul does not explicitly condemn slavery in every sense of the word and require all masters to free all slaves immediately. But the New Testament's teaching on this matter does necessarily and eventually lead to the cessation of all forms of slavery in all cultures and societies which embrace the gospel of free grace. Right? The final point on this, and then we'll get to our text. It's, it's pretty simple. If, if all Christian masters had increasingly grown to have these thoughts, the thoughts of Scripture in their hearts about God, about man, about justice and equity, would there not be a progressive but definitive end to slavery in every culture where the gospel is embraced? The answer must be yes. And you know what? That is exactly what we find happens in the world. As the gospel advances in societies, slavery and other such things go away. 
But more on this later. We need to move on to our second point as we look at the text here. With these considerations in mind, I want to consider, second place, Paul's words to those in bondage. Look with me at verse 1 where we see Paul's admonition to all bondservants. And I like the ESV's translation here, using the word bondservants. I've used the word slavery pretty much up to this point. But I do think that what Paul is getting at here is more helpfully conveyed by the translation bondservants than the use of the word slaves. Especially for application in the 21st century, bondservants, I think, is more helpful in bridging the gap between Paul's world and ours. So what does he say? He says, in short, bondservants should be, uh, they should consider their masters as worthy of all honor. Honor is a theme that has run through this entire section here, to honor widows, to honor elders, and now to honor masters, he says. Why? So that the teaching and the name of God might not be reviled. And this is to those with believing and unbelieving masters alike. Paul says, honor them. Paul calls calls upon Christian bondservants to respect their masters. He doesn't go into much detail here because he'd already written about it sort of extensively in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. He writes, "Um, bondservants, obey your your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ." Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. I think earlier I said that his word to masters was in Ephesians 5. It's not. It's Ephesians 6, just the next verse in verse 9. That's what he says to, to, to bond servants here. So a, a mere four years after Paul had written these words in Ephesians 6, um, Paul is now writing these words in, in 1 Timothy 6, right? It seems that what had happened in just that short time is that formerly profitable bond servants in Ephesus had become brooding, disrespectful, and unprofitable. And it was leading, especially leading non-Christian masters to blaspheme Christ, accusing the gospel of producing lazy, otherworldly, and disrespectful workers. And so Paul calls upon the bondservants here to straighten up, as it were. So what about us today? A brief word of application here. You know, I, I really think that, I mean, the closest and and most immediate connection to draw for present-day application is the workforce from what Paul, who he has in mind here. So for us, if you have a a, a crummy employer, Christina, Maggie, if you have a crummy employer, though not an abusive one, Paul would say, respect him and work hard. When we allow ourselves to set limits on our diligence, honesty, or perseverance in our work because of the quality of those for whom we work, we deprive ourselves, as we saw in Ephesians 6, and we dishonor the Lord, as we see in 1 Timothy 6. Paul makes clear in Ephesians that the worker shall receive from the Lord his ultimate reward. And then in 1 Timothy 6, It's so that the name of God and the teaching might not be reviled. 
For Paul, everything revolves around the name and the fame of God and the advancement of the gospel in the world. So a few questions for us to consider when in our work. So whether you go to work in an office or you work at home or you work with your children, you work with your hands or your mind, whatever it is, think some of these questions. Do you recall each day that you answer principally to God and you represent him to the world? Do you think about how you shall answer him one day for your labor? Do you think about how your behavior at, at work with the people with whom you work and for whom you work, how does your behavior speak of Christ? How might these questions shape and form your thinking toward work each day? Right? Work is not slavery. That's a post-fall reality. Work, that's a pre-fall reality. Shouldn't these questions and these realities not prompt us to work with diligence and intelligence? I read a story this week about an employer who had become skeptical about Christians after hiring two theological students. The pair always seemed to be standing around talking about God during work hours and not working. One day, the boss observed one of the men head into the restroom for 20 minutes. And upon exiting the restroom, the employee said to his friend, I just had the most wonderful time. I read three chapters of the Gospel of John. Now, the author telling this story, he writes, three chapters of John in the John. On the boss's time pleases neither God nor man. So the word to us is this, work to be a blessing to others. Particularly if you have someone that you answer to, and and all of us in some way do, be a blessing to your employer, not less of a blessing. Be more of a blessing, not less of one, so that he may glorify your Father who is in heaven. An employer shouldn't look at an employee and think, man, that person is the laziest worker I have. Because he's always talking about Jesus and never do anything. This is the most diligent worker that I have. But something else to consider, especially in our present day, right? For, for us, in, you know, if you're working, uh, you're, you're not a slave. You don't, you don't have to continue to work for any given employer, right? That's the beautiful thing about at least what America is, is intended to be. One of the things it's intended to be, right? You, you have options. Maybe not a bunch, and maybe none of them are great, but you have options regarding how you can make a contribution to the world and your family and society and, and how you can provide for yourself and your family in a way that allows you to be generous with others. The, uh, the, the options in the present day are, are probably, we have more options today than anyone in history. So you don't have to stay in your place of employment if it's really that bad. You can go get another job somewhere else. Paul actually makes this point regarding those in bond service in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 23. He tells those bond servants in Corinth, he says, hey, 
If you can obtain your freedom, do it. So if you hate your job and your boss and everything about your workplace, find another job. But in the meantime, work as hard as you can, treating those with whom and for whom you work with dignity and respect, knowing that God is your boss with a capital B. Well, in this second point, secondly, we see in verse 2 where Paul speaks to bondservants with believing masters. He narrows in the focus, not just generally, not just all masters. Now he says, those of you with believing masters, or in our context, we might say employ- employers, right? Paul says that if your employer, your master is a believer, don't use that as an excuse to slack off. But all the more, serve better, work harder, be an even bigger blessing since your good service is being rendered for the benefit of those who are loved by God. There's a tendency in the human heart toward selfishness. I don't know if that's news to anybody in here, but we, we, we skew toward selfishness. And we like to take advantage of situations, sometimes every chance we get. Apparently, this was happening in Ephesus. Bondservants with believing masters were slacking on the job and expecting uh, that they could just skate by since their master was a fellow Christian. Oh, he'll cut me a break. He knows I was over there reading my Bible. To speak anachronistically, they, they didn't have whole Bibles. I get it. Paul speaks a word of warning here against such a temptation. He's adamant. Christian, don't slack off. Don't disrespect your employer on the basis that he's a fellow Christian. Don't don't assume that he's going to be obligated and willing to just cut you a break over and over again. All the more, in fact, Christians should joyfully render even more excellent work for a boss who professes Christ. Since it benefits, it says, one who has, or for uh, one who is beloved. One who is loved. Loved by whom, we might ask? Well, loved by God. Your work is not just something that earns you a paycheck. In fact, I would, I would probably suggest that, that much of the work that each of you do doesn't earn money at all. The work that you do is something where you render benefit to someone else who's been loved, in this case, Paul says, by the eternal God. If you work for believers. How might that shape your perspective this week? Tomorrow morning when you go into work. Do you realize if you have have a, a believing boss that you are rendering a benefit and blessing to someone who is held in God's affections? This is someone for whom God sent His only Son to die. Christ was slaughtered for that person. Surely you can work in such a way that blesses Him. So Paul says, Honor and respect those for whom you work, especially if they're Christians. So that the word of God might not be reviled. And because if they're believers, you're benefiting someone for whom Christ died. 
Well, finally then, some, some application of all of it, and then we'll, we'll be done. We said earlier that slavery of, of any kind was not in God's design for the original creation. But now that we live in this fallen world, where slavery of various kinds has sadly become par for the course. So the question here in this final point is, what is the final hope regarding the enslavement of humanity? In other words, what can we, what can we say about its inevitable end? Well, first, a note about its, its present reality, right? Yes, the gospel goes forth, and as it does, transformed hearts lead to societies that reject things like slavery. But the, the truth is that slavery is still very much a reality in the world today. In fact, human trafficking is growing at an exponential rate around the world where people, namely women and children, are kidnapped and sold for purposes and things that I dare not speak publicly here. The horrors and the evils that these women and children have endured, and some are enduring right this very moment. We shudder to think. So let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that because we live in a country where slavery is technically illegal, let's not think that it doesn't exist. Apparently, somewhere between 15,000 and 50,000 women and children are forced into sexual slavery each year in the United States. And there are an estimated 45 million people in slavery in the world today. That's like two Beijings. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history, measured by the loss of life in war and genocide. And I I think we'd be fools to, to think that the pace is slowing all that much in the 21st century. According to one agency, if you think about, uh, narrow it a bit to Christians, right? About 1,200 Christians, according to one agency, uh, die a year as martyrs in the world. According to a number, another agency, it's 90,000. So not 1,000, but almost 100,000. And by 2030, I think we're supposed to hit 100,000 martyrs in the world, according to this, this one agency. Presently, 200 million women, present, they, they cope with general mutilation bestowed upon them by the, world, the world's lar- second largest religion. Islam. So there is work, brothers and sisters, to be done as it regards slavery in the world. The gospel has not penetrated and permeated every corner of the world, and as such, violence, coercion, and kidnapping continue. Though in places like the West, they often continue in secret. Because of the gospel's effect here, it isn't something done in broad daylight anymore, thank God. But we nevertheless must devote our prayers, our time, our resources, and our energy to condemning such cruelties and to rescue those, in the words of the proverb, rescue those who are being taken away to death. 
And yet, as hideous, grotesque, despicable, and vile as such things are, there is one last type of slavery that we need to consider. Which is, of course, slavery to sin. Adam, as our federal head, effectively sold all of humanity into slavery, to sin, and to Satan. And yet, praise God, the Scriptures present Jesus, the last Adam, the master of masters, who was not only willing to rescue us, but willingly became a servant, a slave, in order to redeem slaves, to redeem servants and masters alike from the dreadful and eternal slavery to sin into which we are all born. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, we read that Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not exploit that privilege, but instead did what? Took the form of a servant. And He suffered death on a cross for our redemption. But he doesn't merely redeem us from slavery to sin and then leave us masterless. He purchases us for himself to be our gracious master. So every single one of us, every single one of you in this room this morning, you are a slave. You are either a slave to sin or to Christ. The question is, right? Who, who is your master? Which master do you serve? Sin is a cruel tyrant. Sin threatens and forebodes. Sin punishes. Christ is gentle. And his yoke, it's easy. His burden is light. Christ perfectly obeyed the will of his heavenly master, his father, so that he might render himself a perfect sacrifice and substitute for people like us enslaved by sin. So if you're shackled by Satan this morning, you're in bondage to sin, just look up. Look to Jesus and find the freedom that has been purchased for people like us. Look to the one who held nothing back, but rendered all service to God for you. So to, to re-ask the question, what comes to your mind when you hear the word slavery? I don't mean in the slightest to diminish the sufferings of countless men and women throughout world history, but I pray that, that this sermon would reorient our thinking toward God's infinitely glorious gospel purposes in the world. More than overturning bad institutions, the gospel aims at personal redemption and transformation of individual hearts. That's why our, our mission statement at Redeemer Baptist Church doesn't speak of eradicating slavery from the world. But what? Seeing transformed lives and spreading the gospel of free grace. Lives transformed by the gospel lead, first and foremost, to greater degrees of communion with God and one another. 
Oh, and as a wonderful bonus, a necessary bonus, lives transformed by the gospel of free grace become increasingly hostile to violence, threats, and coercion that are required to maintain slavery in the world. And so lives transformed by the gospel of free grace are bringing about the inevitable end of such an abominable practice. 